We are so happy that you are able to join us for today's message. Our hope is that it will encourage you in your walk with God and inspire you to reach those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. For more about Global Heart Church, download our app today or visit us at globalheartchurch.com. Enjoy the message. I just really believe for 2020, this is a word for your decade. And if I thought about a word that God wanted to speak into your life about this decade is this, is that God wants you not to worry. This is to be a worry-free decade. God wants you to have a worry-free decade. And that's a, that's a, I reckon of all the things that you could be told, I reckon having a worry-free decade would be right up there at the top of the list. Right, because we're so consumed with anxiety, we're so consumed with the worries and the cares of this world, right? And there's a lot to care about. You know, we've got coronavirus killing people here, there, and everywhere, and and spreading like wildfire. It literally is. I think 70,000 confirmed, 78,000 confirmed cases, and just doubling by the day. And of course, they're just the figures we know about. We're not, not figures. We, you know, you might be sitting next to someone with coronavirus. We don't just don't know. No. And that's why the word is, don't, do not worry. <laughs> just, just turn the person next to you and just cough. No, only joking. <laughs> only teasing. No, it's very serious, right? It is, you know, going through, uh, I flew from Atlanta to uh, Los Cabos, then to LAX, and then to Melbourne, and then to here. It was a long way to come. And just everywhere you'd go, there were people with face masks and and uh, everywhere, you know, and it's just going to increase. You watch over the next few weeks and months, uh, this thing keeps doubling at the rate that it's doubling, and and uh, and so on. They're cancelling flights out of China just all the time, and and you think about it in Australia, there's 1.3 uh, million Chinese uh, origin people, people from China, and so they're wanting to come backwards and forwards, and the whole place is on lockdown, and and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of a lot of things to worry about. That's just that's just last week. That was just the virus this month, let alone all the other things that are taking place around our world. And I just really feel like God wants to get something in His Spirit today, which is that this is to be a decade of no worries, mate. All right? So if if there's a a title for an Australian audience, it would be no worries, mate. The Americans would have no idea what that means. So uh, I have to say it a different way. But do not worry. That's what God wants to get into your heart today. And the reason we know it's top of God's mind is because there is more scriptures about do not worry and do not be afraid, do not be anxious than just about anything else in the Bible. You know, the top three search things over 2017, 18, and 19, as I shared on Friday night, were all scriptures related to worry, fear, anxiety. Why? Because it's part of our world's culture and and it's part of the atmosphere that the devil has brought into our world to keep us from living our best. And that's why Jesus himself, when he made his great manifesto uh, with with uh, Matthew chapter 5, with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, his great manifesto consisted, a lot of it, was talking to people that were being occupied by a foreign force that, that were in economic meltdown, that had struggles and troubles. And Jesus comes with good news. And part of his good news story is found in Matthew 6, and it's about worry, right? He says, do not worry. Think about that. What, a, what an incredible thing to say into that world, let alone this world, where the internet gives us access to every problem in the entire world all at the same time. You know, you think about how, the, how our phones and how our access to the internet has multiplied our worries because now we worry about places we've never even heard of before. 
you know, who'd heard of Wuhan before? I hadn't. Uh, now I'm worried because of Wuhan. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, so it's just how our world is multiplying fear all around the place. You know, what they say in the newspapers, fear sells nine times quicker than good news. So no wonder the money makers that are trying to make money out of their newspapers just sell bad news everywhere. And that's why Jesus came along to give us the, the anti, you know, anti-news mantra. That is, do not worry. Let's read it together. This is the word for you for the end. If you'll possess this, and if you'll grab hold of this and understand this, as I share it with you, it won't be just a motivational word. We're going to break apart God's word and understand why Jesus made this pronunciation and what it means. How do I make it part of my life? And let's look at Matthew chapter 6, where he says it the first time. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, because who by worrying can even add one hour? to his life. And why do you worry about clothes? Well, it's because I don't know how to wear them. Why do you worry about clothes? Therefore, do not get married. Find someone that does know and help get them to help you. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? I mean, think about these days. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. We need to start eating, you know, beyond beef burgers and, you know, all this sort of stuff. We're just going back to eating grass. It's just incredible, right? Therefore, do not worry about what we shall eat. Or tell the, tell the, the, the vegans that. What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Think about it. We think it's a, 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 what's it, a modern phenomena. Right back here, they were worried about what they were going to wear. They were worried about what kind of shawl they were going to have, what kind of sheepskin shoes they were going to put on. They were worried about all that kind of stuff. Even back then. What am I going to wear out tonight? You know, what, 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 what color toga is the thing that I need to wear? All that kind of stuff, right? He says, the Gentiles strive after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So stop worrying, everybody, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added Unto you. Notice this. Uh, notice this. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. One of the things that church has done to us is make us seek after our own righteousness. Right? We seek after our own righteousness. We seek to be good. We seek to try to improve our character. And all those things are great, but you've got to be very careful we don't slip over into our own righteousness. Jesus never said to try to be righteous. He never told us to try to improve our righteousness standing. What he said, he says, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Nothing you do will ever cut it. Nothing you ever do. That's why he says, seek after his righteousness. What does that mean? That means that when I have Jesus in my heart, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. It's like I'm wearing a, you know, it's, like, it's, like I, it's like when God looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. Here's what we've been told. If I've done bad, right, I better not come and talk to God until I've got felt better about myself, right? Our own conscience makes us do what Adam and Eve did, which is to run away from God's presence. It's what sin does to us and so on. But God's redemption of mankind was designed to get rid of that idea in us because the whole idea is that we are the righteousness of God. So no matter how good I feel about myself, it's never good enough. If I feel like I'm good before God, I've been a good person this week, I think, wow, I can come and talk to God. The truth is, nothing of our goodness ever cuts it 
will never ever get an answer to prayer because you're good. You'll never get an answer to prayer because you've behaved well. God won't go, okay, give him a couple of more blessings because he's been a nice person this week. She's not been an itch with a bee. She's been a great person this week. And so let's give her something new. Let's give her something wonderful. You guys are all just catching on. Here's the thing, right? <laughs> um, God doesn't work that way. So why do we perform cartwheels and kind of invert ourselves and twist ourselves into a place where we think if I feel emotionally worthy, somehow God will bless me? You're never going to be worthy enough for God to bless because God only blesses perfection, right? That's why we seek His righteousness because His righteousness is perfect. His righteousness never changes. His righteousness is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am right with God the moment I gave my life to Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. But what about if I sin, Pastor? You're still righteous. If I sin, I've got sin in my life. All of us have. But when I come to God, He doesn't look at my sin and discount it according to how I'm praying. So it's like my relationship is not discounted. My worthiness is not discounted, whether I've been a good boy or a bad boy. When you get this, it'll free you up. We're worried about whether God is pleased with me, worried about ourselves. Worry comes into every part of our life. Here's the deal. I've got issues in my life that I've got to deal with. Yes, that's called the process of sanctification. But when I come to God from day one, when I ask Jesus into my heart, from that day, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. All sin. Not just my past sin, all sin. Does that make sense? So yes, I may have sinned in my life, but God doesn't look at my life and go, right, okay, you've done four good things against five bad things. Therefore, this week, no answers to prayer for you. It's just not how God works, but that's how we think He works. How do I know? Because I know that's how I behave before God, and I know you behave even worse. That is this. If I, how many times have I felt, and this is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, the guy who started uh, you know, the protest movement against the Catholic Church, right? This is what he realized. He said that he made these statements, not exactly verbatim, but this is the word he said. He said, how arrogant of us to think that how we feel emotionally somehow placates a just and perfect God. As if God's up with your emotions, as if God cares about how good you feel about yourself, right? That you, I feel good enough, now I can come to talk to God. At that point, God's no, you're full of pride. I don't even want to answer your prayer because you've got the worst. No, He doesn't do that because Jesus is our righteousness. See, if I was God, that's what I would do, you stinking proud person, get out of here. But God says, because of Jesus, you're righteous. Jesus does not get beaten to a pulp and to go through all the brutality that he went through in order for you to come in and out of favor with God. You're not in favor with God because of what you did. You're in favor of God because of what Jesus did. You see, in the Old Testament, 
Guess what got judged? They had to bring a perfect animal, as perfect as they could find, and the animal got judged. The sins of the people were judged by the purity of the animal. So guess what? Our sins were judged by the purity of the sacrifice of Jesus. It wasn't about how good we are. It was about how good the sacrifice was. See, because Jesus was perfect, His sacrifice was the one that was accepted for all time, for all men, all women, forever and ever. And when we call on the name of the Lord, we are saved. And we are the righteousness of God. In fact, the Bible says, sin will not have any dominion. So we're scared that if we live under grace, the favor of God, and we talk about grace, we'll start talking, we'll have people like my mother. My mother used to call it greasy grace. So actually, you've got to watch out for that greasy grace. You'll slide away from God, right? And they try to make us. We get saved by grace. How do we get saved? We get saved by believing that Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. And that's how we're born again, by believing that. Isn't that right? And then we shift into church world where we work for the rest of our salvation. And so what we think and what is taught is this. If we don't follow the moral code of Moses... If we don't follow the Ten Commandments, if we don't live under that law, then guess what? We'll slip away because our human nature will be drawn away. But the Bible says something very different. The Bible says in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, written by the most legalistic person ever, ever lived, which is the Apostle Paul, who got saved by grace and then wrote the great treaties about grace. He says, sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. In other words... So guess what? When you're doing what you're doing wrong this week, say to yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. You'll be shocked at how that will liberate you as opposed to going, oh, I'm going to say, no, oh, 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 oh. See, there's two ways for me not to have an affair. You ready? Now we're getting real, okay? It's, it's uh, in the afternoon. It's lunchtime. I know you're hungry. But let's just have a real talk. Here's two ways that I can have a... That I, Two ways I can stop myself. I was going to say two ways I can have an affair. No, that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> two ways that I can stop myself from having an affair. What is it? Oh, stay away from all those women and the men now. <laughs> stay away, right? Or I can just fall in love with my wife so much I don't even notice. Grace is about falling in love with God so I don't even notice. I'm going to give you a scripture, right? I'm going to give you a scripture that I only saw myself for the other day, and I thought I knew every single scripture in the Bible. But I saw this scripture the first time, and I don't have it on the screen, so maybe look it up so we can put it on there. I think it's Titus 2.12. I believe it is. All right, Titus 2.12. Someone tell me. I'm going to look it up on my own phone while they're doing it to see if I'm quicker. Here we go. Titus 2.12. I'm using an American SIM card, so your... Oh, you guys are amazing. Go, let's go back to verse 11. Okay. We'll come to 12. We'll keep 12 up your sleeve, though, if you want to get to 12. 11. I just thought of this now. I want to give it to you. It's a very powerful scripture. Here we go. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, verse 12, it teaches us. Who? What teaches us? Grace teaches us, not the law teaches us. The grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age. So you've not read that scripture either, right? Someone just put it in the NIV. I think they just put No, they didn't. It says that grace teaches us to say no. We were taught growing up that law taught us to say no. No, the more, what is it, law, and I, I was going to do this demonstration, but we don't have time. And that is this, the law is like, is, 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 the problem for us is that the law is like, we think the law is like a ladder. So imagine if I had a ladder on stage, is there a ladder behind stage somewhere? I feel like just pulling it out. Is there a ladder anywhere? Look at this, here we go, oh, look at that. Amazing, you guys are incredible. You can bring out the mirror as well. So here's the problem. When you live by law, right, here's the problem. This is what happened to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees thought it was about the law. If I could follow the law of Moses, remember there were 613 laws. It's amazing. You just ask for things around here and it just happens. Look, so they live by the law of Moses, right? And here's the problem. See, when you think of law as being the way to get to righteousness, you treat law, that's it, burn their eyeballs out. When you think that you've got to live by law, law becomes a ladder that you climb. Think about the Pharisees, right? So oh, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm better than Pastor Jared. My goodness. I go, I, I go to the gym twice as often. I eat vegan uh, and so on, right? So what happens is I start to climb the ladder of self-righteousness. Because when you live by the law, the only way you get up here is to be self-righteous. And this is what happened to the Pharisees. And the problem is when you're up here, what do you do with everyone down there? You look down your nose at those poor suckers down there that aren't as good as me. So we think the law is a ladder. We climb it, we get better. Oh, yeah, they're my character. So what happens is when we get better behavior modification control, we think we're more like Jesus. The problem is if I get better from behavior modification control, I've got to maintain it for the rest of my life. And then I climb this ladder and I look down at you guys on the front row and I think, you poor, insignificant people down there. I am so much better than you. That's what happened to the Pharisees. That's why the Pharisees couldn't receive Jesus because they thought they were better than him. Anyone ever, any, any religious people that are up their own ladder? They look down on you and say, well, I'm better than you. Look at you. <laughs> They look at Jordan and go, I am better than him for sure. Look at me. I've memorized more of the Bible. I've got more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I've got rock melon and I've got watermelons. I've got all kinds of things that are going on that make me better than anyone else. But the truth is, the Bible says the law is a mirror. The law of God is a mirror. It just reveals to me what I really am. Who's ever had the unfortunate experience? Now, I'm not looking at Izzy. He wouldn't have had this. But for the rest of us, you know, you go to David Jones and you go to, I don't, I don't know why, whoever, I'm going to tell you why David Jones will go out of business. You ready? Here's the reason why. Because when you go into the, into the change room at David Jones, they have put the lights in the wrong spot. Because when you take your clothes off, I don't look that fat at home. But when I go to David Jones and I take my clothes off, I'm like, I'm a fat pig. That's what I think to myself. I look, I'm like, really? I can't wait to get home where the lights are dimmed and everything's a little bit better. And I'm looking, I'm like, wow, I look amazing. And then I walk into David Jones and I'm like, 
flipping heck. <laughs> so here's the problem, right? Listen, don't blame the mirror when the mirror says ugly. I mean, if the mirror says ugly, fat, don't blame the mirror. It's not the mirror's fault that you're ugly and fat. I'm talking about myself now. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking about anyone else, right? Don't blame the mirror. The mirror's just told me what I am. But the problem with the mirror is it can't make me change. And see, the law can reveal how unrighteous you are, but it has no power for you to change. Come on. The mirror can't make me lose weight. It just tells me I need to. And the law just tells me I'm not good enough. It doesn't help me change. Is the mirror perfect? Is the law perfect? Yes, but it has no power. That's why God sent Jesus and sent grace to us. And that's why Titus 2, 11 and 12, memorize it. Grace teaches us to say no. The mirror can't teach us anything except reveal how terrible we are. And how motivational is it to feel how terrible you are, except to say, you need Jesus. Wow, I need Jenny Craig. When I look in that mirror, I know I need Jenny Craig. And the law is designed to tell you that you need Jesus. But it can't help you change. And then Jesus gives you His grace, and grace teaches me to say no. It says, sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under law. You are under grace. Come on, everybody. Now, it's hard to grasp that because we all by nature consider, you know, everything in life is about a ladder. Do well at school, climb the ladder, pass that grade, climb the ladder. Everything in life is about the ladder, the social ladder, the educational ladder, the religious ladder. And Jesus came to get rid of all the ladders. Rid of all the ladders. I've told you how heavy I am. That's what happened. I get off the ladder and everything just falls over. Oh, I got jet lag. I'm sorry. I apologize. Here's the thing. So the word, back to the word of the Lord for you for the, in the last nine minutes. Are you ready? Do not worry. Okay? Do not worry. Just look in that mirror. Don't worry. I actually don't look too bad in this mirror. Those lights in the great spot. Fantastic. In fact, it looks brilliant when the lights are off. So the thing is this, right? <laughs> Do not worry. This is the word. I had to give some people some theology before we moved into this part. All right, so there you go. Do not worry. He says, he says uh, here's what the word worry means, right? So one a part of Jesus' manifesto was not to worry. Uh, and so then the word worry comes from the Greek word, which is the Greek word merim now. So we can put it up on the screen, merim now, merim now. Now, what does it say? The Strong's Concordance tells us this. The Greek uh, dictionary tells us this, that merim now means a part of as opposed to the whole. It means to be drawn in opposite directions or divided into parts or to literally go to pieces. You ever heard of someone, hey, don't go to pieces? You know, that's a phrase that we use, right? It means pulled apart in different directions. So when Jesus was saying, do not worry, he was saying, do not merim now. And the best way I can describe it to you is to use this cake. Imagine this is you, and imagine you are this cake. I'm not talking about you've eaten the cake. You are the cake, all right? 
So what happens is, when I get worried about my job, that's called merimnow. And what does the word merimnow mean? It means to divide portions of. So then I'm worried about my kids. I'm a helicopter parent, so I've got to drive them everywhere. I've got to even drive them to the fridge, you know, because I'm scared something might happen between the bedroom and the fridge. And then I get worried about my job, and another portion of me gets divided, okay? Now, you can see I'm a brilliant at this. Now, when people look at me, they wonder why I'm only half the person I used to be. It's why people say to each other, you're on holidays, but you're not here with us. The lights are on, but nobody's home. Why? Because Merrim now, here, Jared, you need more cake. <laughs> Here's the deal, right? Merrim now divides us. So instead of being a whole person with good focus, with no energy being lost, we become divided. Our energy goes. That's why we get exhausted. Some of the most exhausted people are not exhausted because of hard work. They're exhausted because of Merrim now. Portions of them have been divided. Now they're trying to drive their life on half a person's energy levels because their energy's gone over to worry about money. Their energy's gone to worry about the kids. The energy's gone to worry about our marriage. The energy's gone to worry about our finances. And when you are worried, the Bible says, it's like dividing portions of you and you wonder why you're distracted, why you're not present in the conversation, why people can't get through to you. It's because portions of us have been divided. Our heart is depleted. And Jesus said that a house divided against itself will not stand. So I want to talk to you about the three things real quickly. What did Jesus talk about in that whole manifesto? Three things that we all worry about. Number one, we worry about money. Because it's the other God and the other deity in this world. You can't serve God and money, the two deities that fight for our attention. Number two, we worry about our health. Number three, we worry about our future. And in John 14, the disciples have been given bad news. Jesus is leaving Jesus is not going to be here. Their best friend's about to go. Their best friend's about to lose his life. And now Merim now has settled in. And so they're divided. And Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, there's a part of us that has control over whether we let the, our heart get troubled into it. Trouble will happen around us. The coronavirus is all around about us, everybody. But it doesn't have to get into my heart. All my lungs. It doesn't have to get anywhere into me, right? It could be raining outside, and that's not a problem if I'm in here. But as soon as the rain starts pouring through the roof tiles, we know we've got a problem. Jesus is saying, hey, trouble's in the city. The devil and all of his forces have, have come against me, and I'm about to lose my life. But do not let that trouble get into your heart. Our part is to not allow the division to take place. Does that make sense? And he says, to the, he says to them in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. That means you have a chance. You have an ability to not let it happen. Believe in God. Believe in me as well. Verse 25 says, all this I've spoken to you while I'm here with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I told you. And I love verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, which means it's not based on circumstance. I give it to you anyway. Do not let your hearts 
do not let your hearts be troubled again. He's saying it again in verse 27 and 28. What he said in verse 1, do not let the rain get in on the inside of your house. Then the house has problems. While the rain's outside, it's good. If the rain gets inside, it's bad. He says, don't let your heart ever trouble. Don't let the diagnosis trouble you. Do not let your marriage and its state trouble you. Do not allow what's happening in your body to trouble you. Don't let what's happening in your family to trouble you. That's what Jesus said. Do not let your heart get troubled. All right. But Jesus says, he said, my peace I leave with you. And I'm going to, you know, in Luke chapter 8, there are three stories. And uh, the first story, you know it really well. It's the story of the, of the lake where, where there was a storm came up and the boat was about to capsize. Water was pouring into the boat and Jesus was sleeping. Right? And the disciples wake him up and say, why, why are you sleeping? We're about to drown. And Jesus gets up and he stills the wind and the waves. Here's the thing I want you to get in, in 2020. There is something called the force of peace. We think of peace as passive. We think of peace as okay. I'll put up with it. That's not peace. Peace was so forceful that it commanded the waves and the winds to die down. What was stronger, the wind or the peace? Peace is more forceful than the waves. The waves may be powerful, but peace has more authority and is more forceful. And Jesus says, my peace. So he gets up and he says to them, uh, we're going to drown. They say to him, we're going to drown. And, and, and then suddenly the storm subsided and all was calm. Now here's what's interesting. The word calm is the Greek word galeno, galene, and it comes from the root word galeo, which means to laugh. See, well, for some of us, God's going to get us to laugh again. When peace comes, laughter returns. How do you know when you see someone's lost their laughter, understand they've also lost their peace? Laughter is a sign of being at peace. Some of us haven't last, laughed in 10 years. It's because our hearts have been troubled for 10 years. But Jesus says, I'm gonna, my force of peace is going to get you to laugh again. The second story in Luke 8, and you can read all of Luke and see these stories, is about the demon-possessed man. It says when Jesus came and healed the demon-possessed man, he came and sat down, and the, and the last verse says this, he was dressed in his right mind, and the people around were afraid. Here's what happens. When you walk into your workplace, when you walk into your home, and you're at peace, you cause everyone else to be nervous. There's something about a person with great peace in the midst of a storm that freaks you out. Freaks us all out because the natural order is to freak out too. And when a person's not freaked out and they're at peace, there's something about that that's contagious. It runs through the whole place. But for some people, it makes them afraid, right? And so uh, the third story is the story about the woman with the issue of blood. And she's been sick for 12 years and she comes up behind Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment and she gets healed. And he says these words in verse 48. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now we think peace, go in peace is like a salutation, a goodbye, you know, like a chow, see ya, you know, have a great week, whatever. But it wasn't that. Jesus was making a very powerful statement. Now here's what the word peace means. I want to explain the word peace to you. The word peace, uh, the word worry is the word merim now, but the word peace is the word arene. Let's put that word up on the screen there. The Greek word is the word arene. I thought it was Irene when I first started reading it. Uh, obviously, I'm a Greek scholar, you can tell. Arene, 
It means to join together, tie together into a whole, properly wholeness. That is when all the essential parts are joined together. So what he's saying is this, Merimnau divides, but Arini puts all the pieces back together into the cake, right? It puts it all back together. And he says, my peace I leave with you. In other words, I'm going to tie back in all of those issues that have distracted you, that have discouraged you, that have disjointed you. I'm going to give you my peace. If you will stop trouble getting in your heart, I will supply all the missing pieces till you are whole again. So when he said to the woman who had been healed of bleeding, he said, you're healed. We think, wow, that's awesome. She got healed. But we don't know about the 12 years of trauma. We don't know about how her mental state is. We don't know how, how emotional, uh, you know, you find people who've been through trauma, that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so they may be out of trouble, but they still freaked out by what's going to go on around them. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm not just going to heal your body and leave all the pieces over here. I'm going to put all the pieces back in your mind, in your soul, and in your spirit. And so what Jesus wants to do in 2020 and beyond is put your divided pieces back. And if he does, you'll start to laugh again. Not only that, you'll start to make other people nervous when you're around because you're so at peace. And number three, there will be a wholeness inside of you that's just incredible. You know, 1 Peter 5 says this, and I'll finish with this verse. It says this, Cast all your care on Him because He cares for you. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Notice it says like a roaring lion. It's not a roaring lion. Jesus is the roaring lion. The devil sounds like he's a roaring lion, but he's not a roaring lion. But he certainly sounds like one. And he says he's looking for someone to devour, which means that he can't devour everybody. He can only devour some people. And here's the deal. The devil is scared of a Christian at peace. Peaceful Christians disturb the devil immensely. He's been defeated at Calvary when Jesus said, it is finished. Took the keys of hell and of death. So the only area that the devil has to work in is in our emotions and our mind. So we can hear him roaring and we get afraid. We get the diagnosis and he starts to roar and we get afraid. We start to see things and he roars and we get afraid. But not everybody gets afraid, but he is looking for those who will get afraid. Because whoever he can make afraid, he can devour. Whoever he can merim now, take out the pieces, he can devour the rest. And that's why in Peter, it says, cast all your cares upon him. That word cast is like, and I've got to do it with something. Someone give me a hat. Someone, anyone got a hat here? A jacket. Or, the jacket will be great. A hat will be great, even better. You can tell I've got a big head, right? Here's the thing, to cast down, cast all my cares is, is an aggressive term in the Greek. It means to grab that thing and throw it down. It's not like, oh, can you pray for me? 
It means to throw it down, cast all your cares on Him for He cares for you. Then He says this, resist Him. Notice the Bible never says rebuke the devil. He says resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can rebuke him all you like. He's not caring. His roar is louder than your rebuke. But when you resist him, he runs from you. One of my friends is from Zimbabwe and he's one of our pastors in, in, uh, in Atlanta. Came from Adelaide, married an Australian girl and, and uh, tries to pretend he's an Australian. Anyway, he, uh, he's a great guy and he's from Zimbabwe. And, and so he was telling me how in school, you know, he was out uh, in the countryside. And so they would teach him how to deal with the, with the big five in Africa. What do you do if an elephant comes along? What do you do if, uh, uh, you know, a, a lion comes along? What do you do? And so each, there's, a, there's a different strategy for combating each animal so you don't become prey, so you don't get killed. He said, when a lion comes, he says, the very worst thing you can do is run. The very worst thing you can do is try to run out of that place. He said, we're taught when a lion would come, is to stand your ground. Look straight at the lion. Make yourself as big as you can. Raise your hands. And then begin to shout and scream at the lion. He said, and most times, even if they're hungry, they won't come and attack you. Most times they will go away if you'll stand Lift your hands and yell back at the lion. And as you began to tell me the story, I thought, how incredible that God uses the lion as the example about the devil roaring like a lion. So what's our answer when the devil's roaring like a lion? It's not to go, oh, oh, help me. It's to stand up, raise your hands and start to speak over your life. Start to praise God over your life. And as you do, this peace that Jesus said He'd leave with you, everything starts to come back into place. You're going to, I'm going to prophesy over you. You're going to feel more energy this year than you've ever felt before. You're going to feel more strong. You're going to feel more confident, more capable, more energetic than ever before. If you'll stand and say, I'm not going to be eaten by the lion. I, I, I am at peace. Your peace is with me. I'm not going to let trouble get in my heart. So this is what I want us to do. You ready? I want us for 30 seconds. There are things roaring in your life. Health lions, marriage lions. They're not really lions, they just sound like one. So what you have to do is exactly what my friend Nick told me. He says, you've got to lift your hands. You've got to look straight in the face of that thing and you've got to roar back. You've got to shout back. What does that mean to us? It means praise back. We're going to praise God because you're just a sound like a lion. You're just a shadow of a lion. You're not a real lion. Someone turned on the noise to create lion music, but it's not really a lion. And therefore, I'm going to speak against it. I'm going to declare about it. And I'm not going to be devout. So come on, for 20 seconds, let's begin to pray. Let's begin to shout out. Father, we pray right now. We declare in the name of Jesus. Today, Lord Jesus, we love you. 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 Oh, we declare. Church, download our app today or visit us at globalheartchurch.com.